Welcome back to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, here's someone, we have someone in the studio today for decades has been making New Haven tick and Connecticut tick in such important ways. And she's reaching a milestone. Her name is Frances Padilla. She's executive director. Is that the right title? President. President of Universal Healthcare Foundation of Connecticut. She's been there 18 years. And she's stepping down at the end of the month. This is her last month at the helm. I'm sure there are going to be more good things to come. And she's in the studio to tell us what's happened, what she's learned from the process, and what's next. Francis, thank you so much for coming in. So happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I always feel good when I talk to you. I feel like they're good people in the world and they're getting stuff done. Universal Healthcare Foundation's name says it all. I think you were formed in 2004? We actually were formed in 2000. 2000. Uh, out of the fight. Um, over the uh, demutualization of a health insurance company. Exactly. Was it Anthem? It was Anthem when uh, it bought up uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, the last nonprofit health uh, plan oh. we had in Connecticut. And that took place during the 90s, you know, and then when... And if we don't mind getting the microphone closer to you, Francis? Sure, no if problem. Let's move it towards you. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah, the last nonprofit health insurance was going. And if I don't, if I remember correctly, the government got involved in regulations say, if we're going to let you do this greedy thing that's going to screw up everybody's health care... You're going to at least have to donate money to a foundation whose purpose is to try to get as many people covered with health care as possible, as affordably as possible. Is that the right way to put it? Well, the actual story is that there had to be some push on the government to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Connecticut is the uh, insurance, insurance capital of the country and certainly was. Which never point. meant insuring people. It meant having insurance companies make it, a lot of it money. It meant having headquarters yeah. in yeah. Connecticut, right? And uh, and I want to say something that today is a particularly um, uh, special day because this afternoon there is a celebration of life for a man named Phil Wheeler. Phil UAW. Was, yes, he was the leader of the UAW region um, uh, office for many years. And it was he and a number of other uh, leaders in the labor movement and other people uh, in the community who saw what was happening with the merger between uh, Anthem and Blue Cross. And uh, Phil said, wait a minute, that can't happen. That really can't be allowed to happen without getting something that could be a resource to keep fighting for uh, access to affordable, equitable, quality health care for everyone. And how everyone. much money did they have to put aside to form it? It was a settlement, and the the um, the original settlement was about forty million. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it went, it, it had to go to court. You know, it wasn't something that the insurance. You know, it was very similar did. to another fight at the time of the demutualization of New Haven's last mutual savings bank. Correct. And there was a fight. They brought in the government, pushed the government, and they formed a community bank, which is now New Haven Bank. Exactly right. And you know, this is those what, are two great fights of the turn of the century. They were ter- they were ter- 
And unions were involved in both. You know, you mentioned Phil Wheeler and UAW. He particularly and that union seemed at that time, Francis, if I remember correctly, were involved in so many social issues fights and political issues fights that weren't just about contracts. They really saw health care and environment, I believe, as part of what was going to keep their memberships healthy. Exactly right. And and they really they really saw the fight for universal health care as a social justice fight. And when the foundation was founded and, and um, formally created, uh, the mission situated uh, access to affordable, quality, equitable health care in a larger social justice fight. And 22 years later, we continue and we're leaning even more heavily into the part of that mission that's about social justice. Because mm. as you know, all of the issues that are determined, the social and economic issues determine and affect health. And although we at, you know, are focused on health care, health care is only 20% of what people need to be healthy. The other 80% is affordable quality housing, good education, good jobs with good wages. Food insecurity, as you know, food. up to half people in some of our neighborhoods Absolutely miss some right. meals because there's enough food. Absolutely. It's kind of crazy given how much food there is. In our how city. much waste there is, yeah. right? How much food waste. So what has that meant for healthcare organizations like yours if you found yourself more involved in like food insecurity, um, policy discussions, legislation, well, we, housing, affordable housing quests? Absolutely. We have been moving uh always always in solidarity with social justice issues related to health um but really moving more in a very intentional way to working on building grassroots power uh to advocate for policy change across the social justice um continuum and really all roads lead back to health we are still focused on healthcare policy, of course, but we need power to affect healthcare policy because the uh, there's a lot of um, forces that really consider you know change threatening, whether it's the insurance companies or the hospital systems or um, the pharmaceutical companies. But Connecticut residents, we just completed a household survey. This year, Connecticut residents are so worried about affordability, and they're across the board. Across the board, across political affiliations, race, ethnicity, income, people are worried about affordability, and particularly prescription drug affordability. And yet, in all these years of um, advocating. Uh, for changes that would regulate the industry, changes that would, in the end, benefit consumers, we feel that what is most difficult, most challenging, is that the people are head of policymakers. Mm -hmm. There are some fantastic policymakers. There really are some fantastic people in the legislature who really want to do, you know, they have vision. Uh, The powers that be, really have a lot more money that they invest in lobbying against that kind of vision. And so it's really about the people. It has to come back to those most directly impacted. And I will say that what we've also, over these 22 years, been able to um, sharpen for ourselves is an appreciation that if universal health care does not work 
for black and brown people, low-income people, LGBTQ, if, they, if it doesn't work for disabled and chronically ill people, then it doesn't work for anybody. And Babs Earl's obviously says, I'm a huge fangirl of the fabulous Francis. That's Francis Padilla. This is her final month as president of the Universal Healthcare Foundation, which is behind so much of the progress we've made in this state to get more people covered with healthcare more affordably and in concert of what's emerging larger social justice agenda. So when I, I, I've always seen that you've broken down your work at the foundation's legislation, organizing, and education. So tell me a little bit how you got on that. You came to the foundation 18 years ago. You were named the, uh, the top person four years later. But you had already been involved in foundations. You worked at the Hartford Foundation, Public Giving. Um, you had the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven. You've run your own business. So you knew what the foundation world was like. What made you think you wanted to go to a healthcare foundation? to make that change as opposed to a union, an organizing campaign, an insurance company, a healthcare facility? Why foundation work? Well, I will tell you that, you know, I've been, I feel blessed by being able to spend my career in the field of philanthropy, and I've had many um, opportunities uh, to, to exercise my voice. And I, I've taken... Um, the opportunity to say some hard things uh, because I feel like philanthropy has a lot of unrealized potential. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. A lot of times money gets spent, does it create the change? Yeah, you know, it's about um, whether you're committed to the root cause uh, of problems really being addressed. Mm. And I'm not, uh, I appreciate that different kinds of foundations have different mandates and different constraints the field though and i'll just speak to my own experience right we when when we fund service programs that are addressing disparities that get created by inequity uh we help a lot of people that's really not in question and people need help in the here and now Mm -hmm. right the thing is that we could be funding those kinds of programs to help people forever and not actually address why they are having those challenges. You mentioned food insecurity. Another group that we are um, at Universal really working closely is is the immigrant community and particularly the undocumented. And you guys are early on that. You guys were the first ones out of the box. On you that, know, right? we, we, it's not really about being first, or, but it's what we've learned is when the people most impacted are actually in front and they're saying this is what we need and this is we want to work to get it and come along with us be co-conspirators with us be you know that's even more and i remember being that early on. i remember some of the early meetings you had on that i'm thinking oh six oh seven francis could you give me a few examples of health care that is more accessible affordable now change that made in policy because of work your organization has done in concert with allies Sure. You know, um, I'm going to continue this example on the on the immigrant front because so me think it's it. been a long time and it has not been an easy um, an easy journey. The last two years have been a turning point. Mm. And I will say that our role has been to be shoulder to shoulder with immigrant led organizations and other partners in 
making the, the demand for access to the Husky program for all immigrants, regardless of status. And has that happened? It has. It's begun to happen. We have, we're getting incremental wins, which, mm-hmm. you know, back in the beginning of the foundation's life, we thought incremental wins were not what we were about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. No, we wanted it all fast. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. All. There was a strong ser- sense of urgency. And you asked me before what, we also what drew back me then. to that. Yeah. And what drew me to healthcare philanthropy what drew me was this particular foundation's sense of urgency. Mm. And I was impressed because I'd felt, even back then in 2004 when I joined the foundation, that philanthropy was a little too complacent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Okay to make grants for service programs to make life better for people, but let's you know stay away from advocacy and let's stay away from... And what I found with Universal was, no, no, we're going to start with advocacy. And so that work was really appealing to me, that intersection of public policy and philanthropy. So what happened that you were hoping to accomplish, and what did you get instead that changed your mind, Francis, about incremental change? Well, you know, you may recall the, the campaign to achieve a state law called Sustinet. I remember Sustinet. And yeah. that was a few years of research where we put a lot of money into getting some good estimates of what it would cost to cover everybody in the state. We also looked at different models of how to do it. And we came up with what you could call the, the first, you know, public major option. public option. In Which the means that you have private, you have a choice between a government provider and maybe not you, but maybe you, a lot of us felt like we'd really like to have single payer, but it's not going to happen so let's have a choice where you can have either so nobody gets left behind. Well, we were very, we were very um, focused on leveraging the purchasing and negotiating power of the state of Connecticut. Mm. And I still believe that that is necessary. I really do believe that. So what happened with Sustinet? Well, with Sustinet, what happened was that at the end of the day, the, the lobbying effort of the insurance companies won. And the power of the people was not enough. So where did you go? How did you regroup from that? Well, you know, we also had, if you recall, the timing was such that we had a president named Barack Obama. Yeah. And he came out of the, like, out of the door immediately in his administration saying, we're going to get coverage for all of these 50 million uninsured people. And the mm. Affordable Care Act happened, too. So we were pushing for Sustinet at the same time that we were pushing for the Affordable Care Act because we knew we needed both. There was a lot of resistance in Connecticut among policymakers because they were being lobbied, one, and two, they were being told, oh, we don't need a state public option. We've got that. But we did need it because today we know that even though a lot more people are covered, and we advocated for that, Connecticut has a lot more people covered today than it did in 2010. So what are some of the numbers? Um, There's probably about 200,000 people that, and I'm not sure how uh, recent these numbers are, but about 200,000 people on and off who have been able to buy individual insurance on the exchange, Mm. which is in Connecticut, we 
it's known as Access Health CT. Which was considered the best exchange in the country. It was the first one to have computers working when all the other ones were crashing. Was that because of the work you had done on Sustanet? Well, the, I, we, we readied the territory, yes. Mm-hmm. But, and, and I will say that Connecticut, you know, I give credit where credit is due. Connecticut has a lot of people experienced in insurance. Yeah. And we were able to set up an exchange that actually drew on that as an asset. However, it wasn't set up with enough consumer um, input. Mm-hmm. And it still doesn't work well enough. It, there, there are still not enough products. We, we have a real challenge. There's still not enough products on the exchange or even in the private market off the exchange that are affordable to individuals and affordable to small businesses. So, so how, what was the difference between... Um, Sustinet, the program you were pushing in Access Health. Is that a public access? Access Health includes a public auction, right? No. Access uh-huh. Health is the the exchange. It is the organization. And the exchange created. doesn't include it. It, it does not just, have a public option. Oh, okay. So you still push it for a public option. Well, we are. What we have come to recognize, though, is that the public option does not actually help everyone that needs help. Hmm. Right? It helps small businesses and it would be necessary for small businesses, um, but it doesn't help uh, across the board. And what we've become more attuned to, Paul, is really doing an equity impact analysis, understanding that there are different groups with differing needs, Mm -hmm. and matching policy up to what people in those different groups actually need. Would that be an example, I'm ignoring this, would that be an example, for instance, the people who earn just about too much to get Medicaid? We've expanded Medicaid, and would you take credit for that, too, as something you guys fought for? We've been in solidarity on that issue, and, you know, I mentioned the Husky for Immigrants campaign, but in terms of expanding Medicaid under the ACA, we were all about that. And then now, when you're talking about groups doesn't work for other people who just still earn a little bit too much for Medicaid, we still got to focus on? Totally. There's still, there are still people that need to be focused on um, because they are in that space where they don't qualify for the, um, uh, the exchange for the exchange subsidies, the subsidies that come from the federal Mm. government, even though uh, two things have happened and and the pandemic actually um, uh, stimulated this through the um, uh, American recovery act there has been more money brought into Connecticut as and other states that are help that's helping people on the exchange. And then our government here created a covering Connecticut initiative to actually target that population of people that are in that margin of not being able to afford private insurance on their own and paying, I mean, earning, a little bit too much to be able to be in the And Medicaid you're so right about small business. So the independence, nonprofit, small business. And, and we had such an interesting, ex- my only ex- um, involvement with the exchange, I met like two years ago, the head of the exchange. And he said, oh, you guys can get like cheaper health insurance through us because we get it on the private market. So I said, oh, that's good because we cover people, right? And so I spent hours with this person. In the end, you know what he told me? Everything has come back with, I was going to have to, have less good health insurance, less coverage. I said, well, no, no, the bottom line is people need good coverage. So I want a plan that costs less than the private market has. 
because we qualified, it didn't exist. He said, you can't get around. Yeah. If you want to pay less, you're going to have to give lower quality care. And I guess that was always one of the hidden questions. This right? is the thing. This is why we have always hinged our mission on affordable, and accessible, quality. quality, and equitable. Mm. It, those four, they are connected at the hip <laughs> because it is sure it's possible to buy a bronze plan pay less, yes, have a lower bronze. deductible, yeah, yeah, that screws and the then it does nothing for you. It's insurance, you know, having a card without actual insurance. Talking to Francis Padilla, who probably knows more from working in the trenches for the last 18 years on what's going on with the quest for affordable and equitable and access to health care in Connecticut as she finishes up a great term as the head of Universal Healthcare Foundation. How does your thinking evolve on single-payer so like, that's where the government is. I mean, people like me, it's like an arc of faith, right? It's part of my religion, right? Like if I'm saying <laughs> prayers in the morning, I'm also saying like, of course, you because I don't understand why we need health insurance company. Their business model is it, to not give you what you need, but make as much money as possible for you as they can and then make it miserable when you try to get the help you need. Why should there be profit in this? They don't do it more efficiently. They do it worse than any bureaucracy you could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. So single payer, we look at other countries, yes, there are problems with it, different models, but like Canada, no one's going to trade it like for private companies, but we can't get there. So Vermont, you know, they listened to the Francis Padillas in Vermont and they passed single health payer healthcare, but then they had to bag it because there wasn't enough scale. There weren't enough people and they couldn't make it work affordably. It also was going to cost too much. That's what and I mean. Here's yeah. the problem, right? The cost for Vermont, that particular instance was going to equal, you know, it was just too much to be sustained. Oh, is that because they were too small a group to negotiate a low They're enough price per head? population, right. And and the the really what we need is a system of national health care. Mm. And that is where you ask, where have we come? Mm -hmm. It is really about a federal um, response to that. There, We need a system of national health care. The Affordable Care Act ended up being a compromise between the 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 government and the insurance companies and at that time also the hospital and and um, medical association mm -hmm. the um, if you remember a few years back during the presidential campaign there was a lot of discussion about Medicare for all and there were about six different approaches to med <laughs> to Medicare for all exactly so we already have a single payer program. In our federal but, government, but it doesn't cover everybody. It doesn't cover but it everyone. Would do you have even to be a certain age, or if you're disabled, right? If so is it fair to say you'd like you're pushing for incremental change in Connecticut while you're also looking for the big national policy? Absolutely, must have the big national policy. And I want to say something about Medicare for all because one of the trends that is needs to be watched out for is this Medicare Advantage. Mm -hmm. um, trend where you pay a little more to get decent care to get better coverage or better quality cover, uh, benefits um, but Paul uh, this is really privatizing Medicare and inequitable inequitable Means for people, sure it's going to be better care for wealthier people which is the exact opposite idea of a national right and so um, the, the 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 advocacy work you know I was on a on a I moderated a webinar yesterday that was fascinating and it was focused on immigrant coverage, but this applies uh, beyond immigrant, immigrant coverage. There has to be state level advocacy work that is led um, by grassroots as well as 
grass tops advocates together, Mm -hmm. led by the people most affected. And there has to be sufficient concentration of that work and wins at the state levels to then apply upward pressure simultaneously to the to the Congress. And that has to be concerted. Like that's not going to happen by serendipity. It's got to be a strategy. And there are some national organizations that are seeing. So there's the National Immigrant Law Center, for example, is is carrying out this kind of a strategy around immigrant coverage. There's a lot to learn from what they're doing. Prince P, you've learned a lot in over 30 years of foundation work, the last 18 years, Universal Healthcare Foundation. Before I let you go, you're retiring. Are you? Rewiring. Tell me about that. <laughs> what does it mean that you're rewiring? It means that there obviously are things I am really passionate about. And I really see, you know, 42 years actually, to be exact, Paul. I started in 1981 working for the Hartford Foundation. Wow. And um, I see that, uh, you know, we must, we must have civic engagement. We've got to get more people actively involved in the political process and in so the what's policy your role? Process. Are you going to be because you already do all this stuff that you don't get paid for? You did Progressive Latino Fund that you've done. You've done Boys and Girls. I mean, the Girls, Women and Girls Fund. Mm-hmm. Are you going to retire from paid work and just and do all your civic work? Or are you looking for another paid career? I'm open to both. I mm-hmm. really am. I, I really find this is a wonderful place to be where I have some choices. I am open to both. And you've made such a difference, Francis, for your 42 years. And I know you're going to continue to make a difference. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for the work you've done. Thanks for keeping one of our core issues on the front burner when some people felt it got a little too hot to touch. And the work continues. Thank you for all you do, too. All right. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew I Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.